You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Thank you for making us to see, and we ask now that you would open our eyes to your word and help us to see truth. We pray that you would be glorified through this word and give us an understanding into this text of the things that are here. Thank you that we can rejoice together in the fellowship that we enjoy in your Son and all that you have done for us in him. We ask now your blessing upon our time of study in your word that you would be glorified here in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be reading verses 24 through verse 34. Before we begin, John 9. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, You are... You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are teaching us, so they put him out. I've been reading a book in the last few weeks. It was one that was uh, on the very, that's one that's been on my shelf for quite some time. I picked it up when I was at the Creation Museum uh, several years ago, and it's kind of been one that is, I've been itching to read, but I've never quite had the time to read it. And finally the itch got the better of me, and I decided I was going to move it to the bump, bump it up to the top of a very long list and start reading it. And man, am I ever glad that I did. This was a book that I wish I had started reading about 20 years ago, Though I have to confess to you that 20 years ago I wouldn't have understood it and I wouldn't have appreciated it and I wouldn't have had any idea that it was as good as it is. But I've grown now to the point where I can see how valuable this book is. The name of the book is is this, The Ultimate Proof of Creation. And the author is a man named Jason, Dr. Jason Lyle, and he is an astronomer at the Creation Museum in Cincinnati, Cincinnati, Ohio. And Dr. Jason Lyle is is a smart man, and I mean smart in a way that I've only dreamed of ever being smart, and spooky smart, smart. And uh, you might be asking yourself, now what is, Jim, then the ultimate proof of creation? What is it? Is it a fossil that we have found that proves that God created the world? Or is it some new, as of yet, undiscovered dating mechanism that proves that it was a recent creation and not an old creation? Is it DNA? Is it something we've discovered in DNA? Or is it the Higgs boson particle, the God particle that we've been searching through, uh, searching for for years? What is the ultimate proof of creation? I'm going to give it to you. I'm going to save you the cost of the book, though I recommend that you buy it anyway, and I'm going to save you the time that it would spend to read the book. Here is the ultimate proof of creation. The ultimate proof of biblical creation is that every other unbiblical position or worldview of unbelief commits the fallacy or dies the death of inconsistency or self-contradiction. Every expression of unbelief, every unbelieving worldview, and every justification for unbelief dies the death of inconsistency or self-contradiction. 
Let me flesh it out for you and give you an illustration of what I mean. Evolutionists, atheists, agnostics, people who deny the existence of God, old earth creationists, all of them, they, they use things that they cannot account for, like laws of logic, laws of ethics, morals, um, the reliability of memory, the uniformity of nature, uh, math principles, things in the universe that you can't see, you can't test, you can't necessarily prove them scientifically through a scientific experiment. But atheists and evolutionists rely on these things constantly or all the time, but they cannot give an account for them. Atheists and evolutionists cannot tell you why there is a moral difference between gassing termites and gassing teenagers. But evolutionists and atheists know that there is a moral difference between gassing termites and gassing teenagers. There's a reason we gas termites and not teenagers. Evolutionists can't tell you why that moral principle exists. They live by it. They believe that murder is wrong, that rape is wrong, that stealing is wrong. They may deny that these things are objectively wrong, but they live as if those things are true. Furthermore, they use all of the laws of logic that you and I use, the law of non-contradiction and other laws. Those laws cannot be touched, they cannot be felt, but they are standard and they are there. They are the furniture of God's universe, as it were. So the laws of logic and morals and ethics and scientific experiment, the uniformity of nature, laws of gravity and physics and all these things are things that evolutionists use every day, but they can't account for it. Now, that's not to say that an evolutionist is necessarily immoral or that an atheist is necessarily immoral. An atheist can be a very moral person, but they just can't tell you what morality is or where it comes from. So they live in a universe that God has created, and this universe that God has created has certain furniture that's part of it. It's the, the unseen furniture, laws of logics and rationality and morals and things like that. It's the unseen furniture of this universe that God has created, and God has created us to live in this universe and so atheists and evolutionists are constantly sitting on the furniture that God has created, laws of logic and rationality, and these things that they use every day to discover and live in the world in which they find themselves, but they cannot account for them. And so every unbelieving and irrational worldview commits the death of inconsistency. So an atheist will do this. He will use the laws of logic to argue against logic actually existing. Or he will use the laws of science to argue against the uniformity of nature and the scientific method. It's self-contradictory. It's self-refuting. Every unbelieving worldview dies the death of inconsistency or a self-refuting argument. They use things constantly that only make sense from a Christian perspective. You see, only we who believe in a God who is created can give an account for why there is a moral truth, why there are moral objective morals, why there are laws of logic. Why is it that every time I drop something, it goes down and not up? Why is nature and the laws of nature uniform so that we can test it, we can experiment, we can find out how God does things and we can know the thoughts of God after he thinks them? How is it that that's possible? only makes sense in a Christian worldview. That's the ultimate proof of creation. And by reading the book, you kind of get a handle on how it is that you can identify a self-refuting and contradictory argument and then use it against somebody who's trying to argue against the existence of a God who accounts for these things. Now, you would think that the man in John 9 had read that book. Because as I was reading the book and thinking about John 9, and you were wondering, how's this going to tie into the man born blind? The man born blind was able to see the inconsistency of the irrationality of their expression of unbelief. That these, these men are willing, these Pharisees are willing to cover up the truth. And to do so, they make the most ludicrous, self-contradictory, and self-refuting arguments possible. And the man born blind sees it. Never thought you'd ever hear that, right? The man who's born blind sees it. He sees their contradictory, their self-refuting argument, and he exploits it. Now last week, we got halfway into this conversation between the Pharisees and the man born blind. We started it in verse 24. This is the second time they call to him, call to themselves the man born blind. Now to give you a quick recap of the history, 
This is the second time the whole thing began up in verse 13 when his neighbors brought the man born blind to the Pharisees and they grilled him. How is it that you now see who healed you? How did he do it? And he told them over and over again. And they were unable to give an account for the miracle or explain this theological dilemma that they had. So they be, instead of believing that the man had been born blind and that he had been healed by Jesus, they chose instead to believe the most ludicrous and ridiculous thing imaginable, verse 18, that the man had never been born blind and thus had never actually received his sight, that the whole thing was a conspiracy. They were willing to believe that rather than just to believe the man had been healed by Jesus. So in order to prove that thesis, they brought the parents in and they grilled the parents. And the parents put the lie to that theory by affirming this is our son and he was born blind, though they didn't get into the fray. And you remember why, verse 22, because the Jews had already made up their mind concerning Jesus and they weren't about to be confused with the facts. They had already determined that anybody who confessed Jesus to be the Christ was going to be put out of the synagogue. And so the parents cowered away in unbelief. Now, or sorry, in fear. Now, the man who has been born blind is brought in a second time. And I think he is beginning to see exactly what they're trying to do and where they're going with this. And so he kind of corners them. When they brought him in the second time, I do not think they, I do not think for a moment that they were in the least bit prepared for what they were about to encounter with this man. They thought he was going to be just like his parents that he would cower back, that he would maybe recant, that he would maybe turn state's evidence, that he would give them some piece of information that would overthrow the miracle. But he didn't do that. Where his parents had proved to be cowards, this man proved to be very courageous. And he not only refused to back down, but he took the bull by the horns and he went on the offensive toward them. And he got a little bit snarky when he said to them, why do you keep asking me how I see and who made me, who healed me and gave me my sight? You don't want to become his disciples too. Do you? And of course, they reviled him. And this is where we got to in verse 29. They make a statement in verse 29 that is self-refuting. It is contradictory. And they don't even see it coming. They, they say it without even realizing what they have said. Verse 29. We know that God has spoken through Moses. But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Now, we briefly looked at that last week. But it sort of opens up the rest of this dialogue and everything else the man is going to say after this. They have stepped onto a landmine. They have set themselves a snare. They've dug themselves their own pit, as it were. And they are standing there on the edge of this. They don't realize what they have said or what they have done. But just a couple of questions sort of forces their hand and shows you just how ludicrous this was. How do they know that Moses spoke from God? How do they know that Moses was not a false teacher like they have claimed Jesus was? How would they know that? The only way they can know that is because God authenticated the message and the ministry of Moses by giving him the ability to do signs. That's what a miracle was, by the way. Do you remember this? A miracle is not intended just to wow the crowds. Miracles are not just raw demonstrations of power. God gave the ability to do miracles to limited numbers of people, limited people, in limited periods of time for a very limited and specific purpose. Not everybody in the Old Testament could do miracles. Not everybody in the New Testament could do miracles. As we read in Hebrews chapter 2, God authenticated the message of the apostles by bearing witness through them with signs and wonders and diverse miracles, which He did in His own will. So this was the signs of an apostle that they would be able to do miracles. What was the purpose of miracles? All the way through the Bible, the purpose of miracles is to authenticate the messenger. So that when a man stood up and said, I speak from God and I am giving you revelation, the people would be able to know if he was a genuine spokesman of God because he would be able to do miracles that only God could empower him to do. That was Jesus' argument back in John chapter 5, verse 36, by the way, when he says, the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me that the Father has sent me. What is it that testified that Jesus was sent from God? 
Jesus said, the miracles, the works that I do, these bear witness of who I am. These prove that I am who I claim to be, and what I'm saying is true, and that I have a man come from God. So how would they know that Moses was a man sent from God? They've argued that we don't know where Jesus is from. By that, they don't mean geographically. They just mean we don't know where his authority comes from. He's a man who claims to speak from God. He does these miracles. Where does he get his authority? Who commissioned him? Who sent him? Where is he from? We don't know this, but we know where Moses is from. How would they know where Moses is from? The miracles. So here's their argument. Let me boil it down to you and make it really simple for all of us so you can kind of see through the haze here. Here's their argument. Jesus has done a miracle. We should not follow Him because we do not know where He is from. We do know where Moses is from and we should follow Him because He did miracles. Did you catch that? Jesus did a miracle. We don't know where He is from, so don't follow Him. We follow Moses because we know where He is from because He did miracles. Did I make you do that? You say, Jim, is that really what they're saying? That's what they're saying. We follow after Moses because we know where he comes from. His message and his ministry was authenticated by the miracles. But as for this Jesus, we don't know where he comes from. Therefore, do not follow him. And yet, the very issue itself is the miracle, right? That's the very issue itself. Now, there is obviously a contradiction here because all the man has to do is point to this one thing, that Jesus has done a miracle. And he exploits their contradiction. The very criteria that they would give for embracing Moses would drive them to embrace Jesus by the very same criteria if they were consistent, but they're not consistent. They reject Jesus by one criteria and they accept Moses by the same criteria. That's what they're doing. It is an inconsistent argument. So let's pick it up in verse 30 and you see how the man answers them and what he says. Verse 30, The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he's opened my eyes. Here is an amazing thing. I love the wording there. And by the way, he is laying on the sarcasm very thick at this point. You say, I read that sarcastically, and I think that is exactly what he is doing. Now here's an amazing thing. Given what he has experienced in the last couple of days, it would take a lot to amaze this man, don't you think? Yeah, He doesn't call the receiving of sight amazing, though it was. He doesn't refer to Jesus as being amazing, though he is. What is truly amazing to this man is what? That they do not know where Jesus is from. You know what's amazing in chapter 9? Strictly theologically speaking, is the miracle itself amazing? Yes or no? No, it's not. I mean, look, if Genesis 1-1 is true, in the beginning God created the heavens and earth, there's nothing amazing here. No miracle is amazing, and nothing else in the Bible is really unbelievable. It all would make sense. If in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, then everything else in the Bible makes sense. There's no reason to not, to not believe any of it. So is, is the miracle itself truly an amazing thing theologic, to be theologically accurate? Not at all. It's exactly what we'd expect in a world where God enters into the, His creation. Right? That's what we expect. Nothing amazing about it. But you know what is truly amazing and should be not only to us, but also to this man? Their unbelief in the face of the miracle. Here they have the testimony of the man, the testimony of his neighbors, the testimony of his parents. And now they brought the man in a second time. And they have the audacity to say, Moses, we know where he is from. This man, we do not know where he is from. And here's what he says. This is the amazing thing. That you remain hard-hearted and unbelieving in the face of such overwhelming evidence. That is what is truly amazing. You know what is amazing in our world? Not that God would enter into it and do miracles and be risen from the dead, die on a cross and rise from the dead. That's not amazing, theologically speaking. You know what is amazing? 
that people would remain in unbelief in the spite, in, in the face of so much overwhelming evidence. That is what is truly amazing. Here's the amazing thing. That you remain unbelieving. That you, and by the way, it's emphasized there. Leon Morrison, his commentary on John says the word you is emphatic in the Greek. That you, you, would not know where he is from. And that emphasis is intended to match their emphasis of themselves in verse 24. Look at verse 24. A second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Now they have emphasized the word we, and it's emphatic in verse 24. We know that this man is a sinner, and what they are intending to do is to draw attention to themselves. We, as the leaders of Israel, as the Pharisees, as the leaders of this nation and the religious leaders, we have determined that this man is a sinner. Now you might not have determined that, but we have, and so you ought to listen to us. Now his emphasis in verse 30 is intended to match their emphasis in verse 24. Here's the amazing thing, that you, leaders of Israel, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the teachers of the people, that you would not know where he is from. What's obvious to the man born blind, by the way? He knows where Jesus is from, right? He gets it. What's amazing? That you don't get it. And and you ought to know better. You have the Old Testament, and you've read it hundreds of times. You've memorized large chunks of it. You have all of the witness of the law, the witness of the Psalms, the witness of the prophets, and yet you don't get it. And here I am, a poor blind beggar. Born without sight. I've never laid eyes on a copy of the Old Testament. I have never read it. And I get it. But you don't get it. The leaders don't get it. See, they were accountable. Here's the amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from. And yet, he opened my eyes. By the way, had they ever met Moses? These leaders? Never met Moses, had they? Had they ever seen any miracle that Moses had ever done? Ever heard Moses teach? No, but they're able to go back hundreds of years to Moses and say, we know the source of his authority. And here was a man who did miracles on a scale that Moses never approached, either in terms of the number or the scope of the miracles. Here was a man in their very presence whose miracles they saw, whose teaching they heard, whose life they watched, and they didn't know where he was from. But Moses... They can judge him 1,500 years earlier, but this man in their very presence, they profess to be ignorant of him. We, we don't know. We don't know where he's from. Is that, a, is that the truth or a lie? Did they know where he was from? They had to have known where he was from. They have already predetermined what they believe to be true about him. Verse 22, they had already determined that anybody who confessed him to be the Christ was to be put out of the synagogue. Does this sound like a bunch of neutral people to you? Is this a neutral group of people? Not at all. They've already determined. They're not neutral. There's no such thing as neutrality, by the way. They've already determined what is true of Jesus. They have already said in their minds, we know that He is not from God. And now they're saying, we just don't know where He's from. So they're, they're, they're claiming to be apathetic or indifferent to it or at least ignorant of it. We, we have not made a decision. And by the way, anybody who says they have not made a decision regarding Jesus has done what? They've made a decision regarding Jesus. And the decision is, we do not, I do not have enough proof to put my faith in this individual. I do not believe that the proof is genuine enough that it is, that meets my standards and I refuse to trust this individual right now. That's their decision. There's no such thing as neutrality. I said a couple of weeks ago, we are, we have either a bent predisposition toward the darkness and a love for darkness and hatred for the light, or we, by the grace of God through regeneration, have a bent toward the light and a love for the truth. But you go from one to the other, not over a long period of time where you go through indifference and apathy and ignorance and over to confident trust and belief. You go from one place to the other by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 
And that's what these men needed. They needed to be regenerated because the evidence itself was not going to convince them. Now the man's not done. He's already, it's kind of mocking him. Eh, here's the amazing thing. You don't know where he's from. And yet he opened my eyes and he points to the miracle, but he's not done. Now he presents to them in verse 31 an argument. And I want you to notice something here. His argument has two premises and a conclusion. There's point one, there's point two, and there is a conclusion. And this is the type of argumentation that I've been reading about in the book that I mentioned at the beginning. This is the type of thing that you would read about in there. And he's very simple. He's very straightforward. It's an argument that even the Pharisees could understand. They could get this. They could see this. It is right on their level. And he does two things that are brilliant. First of all, he takes a form of argumentation that they used regularly. In fact, they used it earlier in the in the chapter. It is premise one, statement one, and then statement two, and then a conclusion. Now, there are two ways that an argument can be invalid, proved to be invalid. An argument can be proved to be invalid if, number one, it has a bad form. The form of the argument is wrong. There's something wrong with premise one or premise two and how it deduces, and the conclusion does not necessarily follow from the premise. That's one way for an argument to be shown to be invalid. The second way is if one of the premises is wrong. So let me give you an idea or an analogy of the premise of the argument that he's using. Premise number one, I'm going to do something different. Premise number one, all men are mortal. Premise number two, Socrates was a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Did you get that? All men are mortal, Socrates is a man, therefore, Socrates is mortal. Now, in that instance, the argument is valid because premise one and premise two together lead to premise three. So there's nothing wrong with the form of the argument. And both my premises are true, and so the conclusion is also true. Right? Do you see that? This man is going to give to these Pharisees two premises. He's going to use the form of argumentation that they used earlier in the chapter when they said, we know that sinners, uh, no, hold on, when they said, let me remind myself again of what they said, we know that this man is not from God because he does not keep our Sabbath. Now the argumentation that they're using is this, a Sabbath break, God, a person who comes from God could not break the Sabbath or would not break the Sabbath. That's premise one. Premise two, this man broke the Sabbath. Conclusion, therefore, this man is not from God. That was their argument earlier. Here's what the blind man does, and this is genius. He takes the very same form of argumentation that they used in the first time they were with him, and he plays it on them. It's the very same argument, but here's what he does. He does something different. He begins with different premises. And so he's going to name premise one, and here's the second thing that he does that's brilliant. He uses truths in his premises that they would never, never have argued against, or they could not argue against. Now watch the argument as it unfolds. Verse 31. We know, this is the man born blind, we know that God does not hear sinners. Now stop right there. That's a premise that the Jews and the Pharisees would have affirmed. This is a truth that they held dear. It was almost axiomatic because it's taught all the way through the Old Testament that God does not hear the prayers of the impenitent wicked. Let me give you a few passages from the Old Testament. I think I counted 12 or 15 of them this last week that I could give you. I pulled out sort of the three most uh, poignant and best. Psalm 18, verse 41, they cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. That's David describing the wicked who call out to God for help, but God does not hear them. Why? Because they're wicked. Psalm 66, verse 18, and this is a familiar one, if I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Isaiah 1, verse 15, The Lord says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. So because of their sin, 
God would not hear them and God would not answer. Now this does not mean that God does not hear the prayers of the penitent wicked who feel the weight of their sin and call out to Him for mercy and for forgiveness and for cleansing. God hears those prayers. But it does mean that God does not hear the prayers of the impenitent wicked who do not feel the weight of their sin and are not interested in repentance and not interested in forgiveness. God does not hear them. Does God hear the prayers of Muslims and Buddhists and, and New Ages and Wiccans and all of those people? Does God hear their prayers? Only if they feel the weight of their sin and they are calling out to Him for forgiveness through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a right understanding of what He has done. God will hear that prayer. But every other prayer is unattended to because they do not come to God through the mediator, which is the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God does not hear those prayers. See, the Pharisees would have said, absolutely, we believe that God only hears the prayers of the righteous, that God does not hear sinners. That's the first premise. God does not hear sinners. A good example or illustration of that would be Elijah on Mount Carmel. Remember that? All of the prophets of Baal calling out and crying and praying and cutting themselves and dancing and screaming and singing and all of that. And what happened? That happened. Silence. That's what happened. Nothing. And then Elijah, a righteous man, got up. One quick, short prayer and God answered him in miraculous, supernatural, dramatic fashion. God does not hear the prayers of the wicked. God hears the prayers of the righteous. And Elijah in that incident demonstrated that. By the way, this is a principle that you should keep in mind anytime you hear the claims or read the claims of people who claim to speak for God and claim to do miracles. This Keeping this principle in mind will help you cut through a lot of fog that goes on in modern evangelicalism. And let me give you an example of this. There are a lot of people who claim to hear from God and a lot of people who claim to do miracles from God. Some of these same people live very licentious lives and dissolute lives. In drunkenness and alcohol, debauchery, they leave their wives, they run off with their secretaries, they're involved in sexual immorality, there's sexual assault, and all the stuff that goes on, adultery, fornication, go off and marry somebody else. And for most of them, it doesn't slow their ministry down whatsoever. Not a bit. Not even a hiccup in the road. And they just keep going, plowing on, and the money comes pouring in. These same people teach all kinds of doctrines of demons intended to deceive. They teach things that are the most dishonoring things to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that you will ever hear uttered from the lips of man. And yet they claim to hear from God and they claim to have the ability to do ministry and they claim that God is blessing their ministry because there's all kinds of wealth and all kinds of people and the scope of it. And look, we've added all these radio programs and television programs and all this going on. Listen, God does not authenticate false doctrine by giving to people the ability, people who teach false doctrine, the ability to do signs and wonders. You cannot test a false teacher by his money, by his miracles, by his, by uh, the popularity of his ministry. The only thing you can test a false teacher by is the Word of God. And if they do not speak according to that, then whatever else is going on, it is not God's hand in it. God does not authenticate the message of men who teach false doctrine. And God does not authenticate the message of men who live dissolute and immoral lives by blessing their ministries. They receive blessing is from some other source, or God is allowing that in spite of that. So the people will be deceived and people will follow after Him and get exactly what they want, false teachers. So keep that in mind. God does not hear sinners. The, uh, the other side of that truth is the rest of verse 31. But if anyone is God-fearing, that is, honors God, loves God, pursues God, reveres God and fears God, if anybody is God-fearing, that is the one that God will hear. He hears Him. That's premise number one. God doesn't hear sinners. Now listen, how do you think a Pharisee would have responded to that? A Pharisee would have said, absolutely. That's absolutely true. God does not hear sinners. This is the truth that they affirmed. And they affirmed it for this reason. They viewed themselves as the righteous ones. So they would have said to the man born blind, 
well done. I mean, you're coming around. You're right. We agree on premise one that God doesn't hear sinners. They would have expected or they would have put premise two, this man has violated our Sabbath, therefore he's a sinner. So God hasn't heard him. That's where they wanted to go with it. That's not where the man born blind went. He begins with the truth that both of them would affirm that God doesn't hear sinners. He only hears the righteous. Now here's premise number two. Verse 32. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. That's premise number two. Premise number one, God does not hear sinners. Premise number two, God has heard this man. The one who made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash, God has heard him. Now, if God does not hear sinners and we agree with this, and we cannot deny that God has heard this man because he has healed me, and he has done something that he could only do by the power and authority of God, then what is the conclusion to that? The obvious conclusion is what? Verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. That's the conclusion. Premise one, God doesn't hear sinners. We agree on that. Premise two, he has opened my eyes. That they could not deny. Premise number three, conclusion. Therefore, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing, which is the same as saying, this man is from God, and therefore we owe him our obedience, our love, our affection, and repentance and faith. That's the argument. It's simple. It's straightforward. It's courageous. It's so simple even a Pharisee can get it. It's so simple they couldn't deny it. It's so simple that it's right there on the, on the face of it. They can, they can look at it. They would have to agree with premise one, agree with premise two. They can't argue that the argument is invalid because they've used it previously to try and prove that Jesus is a sinner. And he now is exploiting the weakness in their argument. He begins with the premise that they can't deny, wouldn't deny, uh, continues with a premise that is obvious for everybody to see. And so what is the ultimate and obvious conclusion? This man has come from God. Now, do they argue with his premise one? Do they argue with premise two? Do they attack his conclusion? Do they criticize the, the, the structure of the argument at all? Do they engage with the man whatsoever? No, they do what everybody who has a bad argument does. Verse 34. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and you're teaching us. Do you know what that's called? That's called slander. That's slander. It's what we technically call an ad hominem attack. An ad hominem. It's, it's Latin for at the man. Right? So somebody presents an argument, and you can't deal with the argument, so you just cast slurs and slanders and accusation at the person. You destroy the person so that the person goes down in people's eyes without even dealing with the argument. And that's exactly what they do. They can't refute premise one. It's obvious. They lived and died by premise one. They can't refute premise two, which is obvious, because he sees he was born blind. All the testimony shows that. They can't, therefore, refute the conclusion. So what do they do? They attack the man. You were born entirely in sins. That's a reference to him being born blind, by the way. Remember, according to their theology, he was born blind, and he was born blind for one of two reasons. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Verse 2, that's the question that the disciples asked. This started the whole thing. Either this man sinned or his parents. That was their theology. So you were born entirely in sins. And what is the proof that you were born entirely in sins? The fact that you were born blind. Now look at this inconsistency. Back in verse 18, what does it say? They did not believe that he had been born blind. And now had received his sight. And now in verse 34, what's happened? This is their whole argument that he was born blind. You're a sinner. They have totally changed it. If this man was on his feet, which he might have been, and maybe John didn't record it, he could have just said something like this. Excuse me, but just a few moments ago, did you not believe that I was not born blind? You brought my parents in here to admit that I was born blind? Remember that? You were arguing just moments ago that I was never born blind to begin with? And now what? This is your whole argument. You were born in sin. 
You were born blind. You were born entirely in sin. Listen to the arrogance of it. And you, a beggar, dare to teach us. Pharisees. We are the teachers of Israel. What do you, a poor, blind, despicable beggar, born in your iniquity, living your life in iniquity, living your life under the curse of God, what can you possibly teach us? And so what do they do? Kick him out. Now there are two ways that people try and silence an argument. Slander or silence the person. And that's they do both. They slandered him and then they kicked him out. They excommunicated him. Listen, unbelievers do this constantly, constantly. Just listen for it. An ad hominem attack. People who lose arguments do this all the time. I wish it were a political season because I could give you all kinds of examples. It happens constantly. An argument is made, and what do you do? You deal with the argument? No. Uh, he, he just hates women. He hates children. He wants everybody to starve. He hates the environment. He hates this. He hates that. He's just a despicable, money-grubbing loser. That's all he is. Just attacking the person rather than dealing with the argument. You give somebody an argument for creation from Scripture or from the evidence of creation around us that a design requires a designer, you present an argument like that, and you know what they'll say? You're just an unsophisticated, irrational, gullible, unscientific rube. You're a Luddite. That's what you are. You're anti-science. You're anti-everything. You're anti-technology because you don't believe in evolution. Or if you make a moral argument, like, I believe that taking the life of an innocent human being without proper justification is immoral. Abortion takes the life of an innocent human being without proper justification. Therefore, abortion is immoral. Do what I've done. Premise one, premise two, conclusion. You make a moral argument like that, and what will they do? Deal with the argument. Deal with the premise. You just hate women. That's what it is. You hate women. You want women bleeding to death in back alleys. That's what it is. You and your bunch of bigoted, homophobic, patriarchal, man-centered, blah, 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 blah. That's where they go with it. It's nothing but an ad hominem attack. Listen to the news. Watch, watch people discuss the current issues of the day. You know what you'll see? You'll see some people trying to roughly formulate an argument, and then what will you see? Nothing but ad hominem attacks. Name-calling and ad hominems. Just attacking the man. That's what they did to the man born blind. They can't argue with this. They have nothing to say. This man has schooled the teachers of Israel. They have nowhere to go with it. They cannot go anywhere with this. All they can do is hope to slander him and discredit his story and then to put him out of the synagogue. And that, by the way, was second only to death as far as a Jew was concerned. The worst punishment in the world is to be put to death. The second worst was to be put out of the synagogue. And some people probably would have preferred death over being put out of the synagogue. Simply because of the ramifications of what that meant. If, it, if people found out that this man had been excommunicated from the, from the, from the commonwealth of Israel, excommunicated from the synagogue, they wouldn't hire him, nor would they give him money to support him, even as a beggar. He's going to suffer the loss now of all things because he is not willing to deny the truth. So he's presented his argument and then look what he faces. He faces excommunication from people and his own people and thus his own nation actually for his stand for Jesus Christ. Friends, as Christians, I think you need to get ready to face this type of hostility if you have not already. We need to be willing to do this. Uh, you and I do not face anything like what this man faced for his faith. Nothing like this type. Yet, the day may come in this nation or in other nations where you go. The day may come when you face this type of opposition for your stand for Christ. And you have to ask yourself, am I willing to do that? Would I be willing to stand for the truth and confess what I know to be true and to not back down no matter what the cost? This man was going to lose his reputation, his respect, his means of sustenance, he, he would suffer the loss, literally, of all things because he would not deny Christ or confess to something that he knew to be untrue. He would not deny what he knew to be true. 
And he was willing to suffer the reproaches that come with being a believer. This is the first recorded man in all of the New Testament, the first recorded man to suffer expulsion from the synagogue for the sake of Christ. First one. Now Jesus later in John 16 would warn his disciples, for my sake, they're going to kick you out of the synagogues and they're going to put you to death thinking that they're doing God's service. He, Jesus warned his disciples of that in John 16. But here we are six months before that and this man is ahead of the disciples by at least six months. The first recorded martyr. And he knows what Christ has done for him. And he's not going to deny that. No matter what it costs him. It reminds me of the words in Hebrews chapter 12 and with this I close. Hebrews, sorry, 13, not 12, 13, verse 12 and through 14. The author of Hebrews says this, after making the whole argument that we have Jesus, we have Him, He's better than everything else, and we have received Him, and He who turns back from that knowledge turns back to something that is far inferior that cannot save Him. The author of Hebrews says this, Therefore Jesus also, that He might sanctify the people through His own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now listen to this. So let us go out to Him outside the camp, bearing His reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. And here's the conclusion of the author of Hebrews. Since Jesus suffered outside the gate at a place of contempt and reproach, you and I ought to not seek to turn back to those things which are familiar and lesser than Christ, but we ought to be willing to go outside the gate with Him. Be put out, be put out. Be disparaged, be disparaged. Have people reprove you, let them reprove. Let them say what they want. But go outside the gate and bear His reproach. And listen, we do that with joy. Because we He's not ashamed to call us brethren, right? Read that in Hebrews 2? He's not ashamed to call us brethren. So let us bear His reproach outside the camp if necessary. This man in John 9 was willing to do that. He bore the reproach of Christ gladly. Rather than to deny what He knew to be true. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You have so given us Your Word and encouraged us in it. And we have examples like this man that encourage our hearts together in the truth and in love for You. And we look forward to the joy of seeing this man who was given sight, and not just physical sight, but spiritual sight as well, and then had the courage to worship the One who gave him sight. It is our desire to worship Christ and to be found faithful by Him. We pray for the grace to be courageous in tough times, in the face of opposition, whatever form that may come in. And we ask God that you would steal our hearts in and by the truth that we may bear gladly the reproach of Christ that belongs to us. We thank you for a Savior who is not afraid to call us brethren or ashamed to call us his brethren. We thank you for a Savior who is willing to die for us and to sanctify us and give us courage, we pray, to bear his reproach gladly and with boldness, knowing that the highest honor that we could ever be given is to be called a follower of Christ and to bear his name. Thank you for that honor. We look forward to the day when we will stand before you in your presence and give you praise and glory that you are worthy of. And uh, we pray that in the meantime, until that day, we may never cower back in fear or unbelief. Grant this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.